This podcast is sponsored by Bang & Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favourite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation, because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the magazine by visiting classical-music.com or to our interactive iPad edition by visiting iTunes.com. BBC Music Magazine is now an official Apple Music curator and you can listen to our exclusive playlists by visiting applemusic.com slash bbcmm. Hello and welcome to our monthly podcast in which we briefly listen to and discuss BBC Music Magazine's Recording of the Month. I'm Rebecca Franks, the magazine's reviews editor, and with me in the studio today is Jeremy Pound, our deputy editor. Hello. Today we're going to be discussing the December issue Recording of the Month, which is a wonderful disc of Elgar orchestral works performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and Martin Brabins, and that's on the Hyperion label. The main works on the disc are two of Elgar's popular orchestral pieces, The Enigma Variations of 1899 and In the South of 1904. We're also treated to some rarities, three works that Elgar wrote during the First World War and the first recording of Elgar's own orchestral version of his song, Pleading. We'll return to those later on, but let's start by listening to the opening of The Enigma Variations. So that was the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and Martin Brabins in the opening theme from the Enigma Variations. Elgar was 42 when he wrote this piece and it was an instant success and really helped put him on the map as a composer. It's remained one of his most well-known works thanks to its brilliant construction and memorable themes. And the mystery that surrounds the work hasn't hurt its fame either. Over the years, many listeners and musicians and musicologists have tried to identify the secret enigma of the title. So, Jeremy, what does Elgar mean by the name Enigma Variations and who is depicted in the piece? Well, those two questions are actually, in fact, related, and I'm going to explain that in a second. The Enigma of the Enigma Variations could refer to two different things. The most famous Enigma, if you like, is the identity of the theme that lies at the heart of the work and on which the variations are based. So all matter of theories from vaguely plausible to utterly crackpot have been proposed over the decades as to what it is, but no one has actually really come up with an utterly convincing one yet. It's also quite possible that um, this is all just one big wind-up on Elgar's part. 
Um, he could have been having a bit of a giggle by pretending that there is some sort of riddle to the work, where in fact there is none at all. And so we've all been kind of heading down this blind alley for the last hundred years trying to work out what it's all about. You could imagine it might amuse him, can't you? You can. Well, he had a really mischievous sense of humour for things like that. Meanwhile, the people portrayed in the variations are, frankly, his chums. And the way he depicts their various characteristics and little foibles is where the work has such charm. For instance, in the fourth variation, WMB, about William Meath Baker, we hear his friend's tendency to slam the door as he scurries about busily from A to B. And then in the sixth variation, Elgar pays tribute to his friend Isabel's viola playing by giving that instrument the central role. And perhaps my favourite, there's the 11th variation, GRS, all about George Robertson Sinclair, who was the organist of Hereford Cathedral. And you can hear um, Sinclair's bulldog, Dan, splashing in and out of the River Wye as he goes along. And actually, if you go to Hereford today, you can see a statue of the dog, Dan, by the river. But anyway, it's the 13th variation where the second enigma comes in. Elgar marks this variation in the score, not with the initials of a friend, but with three asterisks. And it's all very mysterious. Was he perhaps hinting at some love interest? After all, he was a bit of a dark horse when it came to romance and later left a similarly coded message at the top of his violin concerto. So we'll leave that one open to guesses. I agree that one of my favourite variations is also uh, the 11th variation with George Robertson Sinclair. So shall we have a listen to that now? So that was the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra really tearing into that variation 11 there from Elgar's Enigma Variations. And this was the piece that made Richard Strauss declare, here for the first time is an English composer who has something to say, which I guess is both a compliment there for Elgar and a little dig at England, the so-called land without music. But Elgar carried on writing works that cemented his reputation as the leading British composer of his era. And in fact, the disc opens with a sizeable concert overture as it's called in the south written a few years later in 1904 so how about we listen to a clip from that now So that was an extract from Elgar's In the South. Uh, you could say that this piece actually fits into an unofficial group of pieces written by composers on holiday and visiting Italy. Think of Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony or Tchaikovsky's Souvenir de Florence. Jeremy, does Elgar succeed in conjuring up the home of pasta and opera for you? 
Well, actually, it doesn't pay to head down some generic Italian postcard route here. Um, the Italy that inspired Elgar was probably very different from the sun-blessed fields and coasts that Mendelssohn enjoyed, or the streets of Florence that had Tchaikovsky in thrall. Alassio, where Elgar went on holiday, and which gives the work its subtitle, is actually on the Italian R Riviera, which is... Um, fairly close to Genova to the east and the French border to the west, so it's up in North Italy. Uh, more significantly, it was December when he went there. And if you've ever been to the Italian Riviera in the winter months, you'll know just how cold it is. And yes, the weather was apparently utterly miserable during the Elgar's holiday there. Um, so bin your idea of short sleeves and drinks on the terrace. What Elgar is depicting here is a more dramatic but still formidably beautiful landscape. He himself actually said that it was all about snow-capped mountains on one side and the Mediterranean Sea on the other. If there are any sunny scenes within it, they are derived more from his imagination rather than his holiday recollections. But only a decade later, we're actually in a completely different world and gone are the, 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 cold, even the cold Italian <laughs> holidays. And instead, the backdrop is a world at war. So our next track from this month's recording of the month is from Une Voix dans le Désert, A Voice in the Wilderness, which was written in 1916 for narrator, soprano and orchestra. So that was soprano Kate Royal and the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and Martin Brabins uh, performing Elgar's Une Voix dans le Désert. It's one of three wartime works that Brabins brings together on this disc. The other two are Carillon from 1914 and Le Drapeau Belge from 1917. Can you tell us why Elgar wrote these pieces, Jeremy? Yes, for all his land of hope and glory image, Elgar was actually very ambivalent about war. There is a letter, for instance, in which he frets very movingly about the fate of the horses who will be killed or injured in battle. He, he was, however, not afraid to do his bit to support the war effort. Um, the first of these three works, Carillon, was written at the start of the war and issues a bit of a rallying call to the recently conquered Belgians to stand firm and dream of better days when Germany would be pushed back and the country would be theirs again. I shall read just some of the words of it to give you a little bit of the flavour. We shall ask the earth they loved so much to cradle them in its broad embrace, to warm them against its vast bosom and to make them dream of new battles, of the capture of Brussels, of Malines, of Namur, of Liège, of Louvain, and of their triumphant entry over there into Berlin. It's all very gung-ho. But then the following two are, as you say, from later in the war, in 1916 and 1917 respectively, when the true horror of the conflict had hit firmly home, and both are considerably more reflective and sombre. It really is a fascinating programme, actually. And as Stephen Johnson describes in the review in the December issue of BBC Music magazine, the playing is really first-rate as well. And Martin Brabins is the man of the moment. He's just been made music director of English National Opera. Jeremy, what makes the performances stand out for you? 
Well, firstly, like yourself, I'd just like to say that I love the programming of this disc, first and foremost. There are so many facets of Elgar's character here, in a programme stretching around 20 years in length. From the fond relationships with friends, to the various attitudes to war, to the excited composer returning from a break in Italy. It's almost like a musical autobiography in 70 minutes. And yes, the performances themselves are terrific. As Stephen Johnson himself says, it's all about Brabens' attention to detail and his evident love of Elgar's scene painting. It's from the wonderfully light touch of the Dorabella variation and the Enigma variations to those dramatic mountainscapes. They're huge in the, in, in the south. And if the performance of Nimrod on this disc doesn't induce a warm glow or a wistful tear in you, I don't know what will. I'd actually also venture to say that Martin Brabham himself is, appropriately, a bit of an enigma, in that he's consistently produced the goods over the years as a conductor, and particularly in British repertoire, of which he's a supreme champion. And yet until now, he's never really held a high-profile permanent orchestral or proposed. But I think he's brilliant. Yes, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in, in the next months and years at English National Opera. Best of luck to him. Yeah. Well, you can read Stephen's review, plus an interview with Martin Brabens himself, in the December issue of BBC Music Magazine. We hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back soon with our Recording of the Month podcast for the Christmas issue. In the meantime, it's goodbye from both of us, and here's an extract from Elgar's orchestral miniature pleading to play us out. Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes. Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical.